0: Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. And what a joy and privilege it is to be here underneath the words of our God. What we have in front of us are plagues, thinking, great, we get to hear about people dying, plagues, frogs, gnats, blood. But really, hidden underneath all of these elements is the glory of our God his self-disclosure to his people and to those people who are opposed to him is just bound up in these 10 miraculous things that he chooses to do in this nation called Egypt. And he's doing it so that he can show us all about himself. I want to invite you just to kind of understand these plagues, even before we kind of dive in. There's a couple of things that, um, and we're going to go ahead and kind of fast forward to the next slide and then the slide after that and the slide after that. See, here's the plagues, right? Really, what we'll see is there's three sets of three plagues, verses one through three, or plagues one through three are gonna kind of go together with a theme, and then plagues four, five, and six are gonna go together with a theme, and plagues seven, eight, and nine are gonna go together in a theme. And what we're gonna see is the, the, the literature, the actual telling of the story is gonna highlight this. See, if we go to our next slide, there's actually a cycle that happens throughout all of these uh, plagues, and it's kind of a, a formula, so to speak, as the author presents this to us. So he's going to start off with this concept of direction, and, and we'll see it in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 15, or chapter 7, verse 14, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter 8, verse 16. Uh, the, the text is going to read, the Lord said to Moses, And then following on the heels of that, after that direction happens, we'll see action. And so Aaron or Moses or someone will stretch out their hand and it will initiate this plague that's to happen and the plague will happen. And then finally, the the formula closes each section with this statement about Pharaoh's heart. And so we'll see this statement about the hardening that happens in 7.22 and 8.15 and in chapter 8, verse 19. By the way, this formula continues all the way throughout these first nine plagues. It actually kind of uh, gives us some structure to understand what's happening in this passage. And what's interesting is, is the The straying from this structure, the individual kind of statements that uh, kind of get away from this or clarify this, that are added to this structure, actually bring us to the understanding of what the author is trying to emphasize. Kind of heading back to the former slide, go back with me. We see that in plagues one through three, the emphasis is going to be on the decreation of the world, that that God hits water and land and air, and he's going to do something so particularly to emphasize that he is God, that he is Yahweh, that he is the self-existing one. Next week, when we talk about plagues four and five and six, it's going to emphasize that the Lord is uniquely with his people, Israel that he's present with his people. Not only is he the all-powerful God, like we learned in these first three plagues, but in the second set of plagues, we learned that that God is uniquely with his people, the people of Israel. And then in plagues seven and eight and nine, the text leads us to understand the destruction of Egypt, where God turns his sights, particularly on Pharaoh. He says, I've raised you up for this purpose and I might show my power to all the world. So what we have in front of us is nothing short of just a beautiful piece of literature that emphasizes the goodness and sovereignty of God. So now we can go to that slide, Anthony. I'm sorry, I got them all out of order. Here's what we're going to see. God's signs and wonders show us that there's no one like him, that our God is unparalleled in his universe. We're going to break it down into three different plagues. Plague number one, the Lord turns the Nile into blood to show Pharaoh he's Yahweh. Plague number two, the Lord removes frogs from Egypt to f- prove that he's Yahweh. Plague number three, the Lord sends gnats to Egypt to show that he's Yahweh. Right? You can see the emphasis is the Lord is showing who he is. Now let's dive in. Ryan read this first section for us this morning. I'm going to invite you to read with me in you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike.
1: That's something we need to be concerned about. All right, they're looking into it. We'll figure something out. <clears throat> We're going to
0: keep reading the text here. So just try and block it out. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile that die, or will die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood, and even or, and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. See, in this first plague, God is... Telling, he's directing Moses, and he speaks to Moses here in verses 14 through 19. The first thing he does is he assesses the nature of Pharaoh's heart. He says in verse 14, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Now, if we remember back to chapter 4, verse 21, this has been kind of this running theme, right? God has promised that he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he can deliver Israel. That God does this in this kind of backwards way. He's going to so work in Pharaoh's heart so that he can deliver his people. And so what he does here in verses 15 through 18 is that he directs Moses. Moses is to go to Pharaoh in the morning. He's going to address Pharaoh as he comes out to the Nile in the morning. And we say, why is Pharaoh going to the Nile? Well, there's probably some, uh, some commentators think it's like a worship ceremony or some kind of morning ritual that he does. And so as Pharaoh is going out to do this, Moses is to confront him. In verse 15, he's supposed to take the staff of God. Remember, this is all the way back to chapter four has been just this central piece that has become very, um, Useful, I'll say. And then in verses 16 through 18, he's to speak God's word. Starts with this recap of everything that's been happening. So far, God has asked Pharaoh to let his people go, and he has not obeyed. But Moses is to tell Pharaoh what he's about to do. Notice what he says in verse 17. He says, by this, you shall know that I am Yahweh. In fact, if you see that word LORD in all caps, that's actually a translation of that name given by God in Exodus chapter 3 that he told to Moses, Yahweh, the self-existing one. It's the, the name that Pharaoh said he didn't recognize, he didn't know in Exodus chapter 5. Who is Yahweh? And so now Moses is to tell him, This is Yahweh's doing. This is who He is. This is what He's about. By this, you shall know that I am Yahweh. Don't miss that. It's important for us to recognize that. And secondly, Moses is to call upon Aaron to use the staff and to turn the Nile into blood. this leads to this string of consequences, right? That all the fish will die, that the Nile will stink, and that all Egypt will grow weary. God's predicting, nothing short, that this one action will upend the life of every Egyptian in the nation. So that's what he's called to do in verse 19. He's supposed to give these instructions to Aaron Aaron's going to raise his staff over all the waters of Egypt. And it's not just the Nile that's affected. Look at what's described there in verse 19. It's it's ponds and canals and even water that happens to be in jars around the nation. Every ounce of water there in the nation of Egypt is being turned into blood. And So verses 20 through 21, we see this happen. Aaron stretches out his hand and he does this. Look at verse 20. The Lord said to Moses... Excuse me, that's the wrong chapter. Verse 20 of chapter 7. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. This is exactly what God predicted in verses 17 through 18. Now we have to just stop and we're just consider this. Why blood?
1: Why blood? I mean if you wanted to turn it into something gross, he could have made it like anchovies or something. I don't know.
0: Why blood? And we've talked about this before. Remember, the previous Pharaoh had used the Nile River as a death machine for the children of Israel. That all the firstborn children of Israel were to be thrown into this Nile, that it was a a way of killing off this entire generation of Israelites to kind of reincorporate Israelites and Egyptians into one new people called Egyptians so that there would be no more Israelites. If you get rid of all the boys, only the girls remain. Who are they going to marry? Egyptians, right? This genocide. So God's looking and he's saying, Pharaoh, I saw what you did. I saw your guilt. I know what you've done. Tim Chester also notes that the Nile isn't just a river in Egypt. It's a God. For it to be turned to blood... Was a direct confrontation of the pluralism of Egypt. In fact, when we get back to chapter 12, I believe it is uh, Moses or someone will say, Hey, God has confronted the gods of Egypt. That these plagues are actually kind of a showdown between the pluralistic gods of Egypt and the one true God, Yahweh. But the upshot in verses 22 through 25 is that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Look at chapter seven, verses 22 through 25. The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he didn't even take this to heart. (coughs) All the Egyptians Dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Notice that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. Again, these magicians, they reproduce the miracle. Their names are given to us in 2 Timothy. Janus and Jambres, they're at it again, right? They're providing some form or semblance of this miracle that God has worked. Now they're doing the same thing somehow. And we really don't get any sense that this is fake, but somehow they've figured out a way to produce this miracle or reproduce this miracle. Look at how much discussion there is in these verses about Pharaoh's heart. Verse 22, his heart was hardened. Verse 23, he didn't even take this to heart. What does that even mean? We're talking about Pharaoh's heart. Are we talking about that organ in his chest that beats? Like, is he having heart palpitations? What is being described, right? What's going on here? Paul Tripp says that uh, that the Bible speaks of the heart as our causal core. It's the seat of all of our action and emotion and desire. Uh, You're familiar with Proverbs 4, verse 23, where uh, the author says that we should keep our heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the issues of life. That if we don't guard our heart in some way, we're open to all kinds of error and wrong thinking and wrong desiring. See, when Pharaoh's heart is hardened, it's to say that he's obstinate to the Lord's goodness and his kindness. As the Lord discloses who he is, Pharaoh will continue to push further and further into rebellion and hardness of heart. It's like when you take two magnets that are pulled against one another and you try and press them together. There's no reality in which you can get those two magnets to come together. The same with pharaoh and god as soon as god shows himself pharaoh is more and more hardened more and more repelled from the presence of god but it doesn't stop there he would think he turned every ounce of water into blood that's a big deal but now he's going to use frogs kermit the frog right every time i think of this i read this i'm just thinking of kermit in every place you go right what he says in, in verses 1 through 15 of chapter 8. The Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and onto your bed and into your houses and your servants and on your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. These frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now listen to this. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, "Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord." Moses said to Pharaoh, "Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile." And he said, "Tomorrow." And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. In verses one through four, God again speaks to Moses. Again, it's the same message. Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. And then there's the threat. But if you refuse to let them go, verse 2, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. And he says more, the frogs will be in the Nile and in your bedroom and on your bed and in your kneading bowls and in your ovens. That's gross, right?
1: Why frogs?
0: You ever wonder about this? Like, why does God send frogs? Well, if you know anything about Egyptian gods and goddesses, the goddess Heket... Was an Egyptian goddess of fertility that resembled a frog? Of course, a frog would represent fertility. Why else? Makes perfect sense. For God to beckon these frogs has to call that to mind in Pharaoh. So now God, the God Yahweh, the self-existing one, has turned the Nile into blood, and he's beckoned frogs to come from every corner of the universe, seemingly, and fill every crack and crevice in Egypt. And so God directs Aaron in verse 5 to stretch out his hand, and sure enough, he does. And, and the plague begins. The, the first plague affected Egypt's water, but the second plague is affecting the land. If you look at verse 5, it's the frogs come up on the land of Egypt. And so the water stinks to the high heavens because of blood, and now the frogs are coming up out onto the land, and everything is a mess. Aaron stretches out his hand in verses 6 and 7. He does exactly as the Lord designed. But then the Egyptian magicians reproduce the miracle. Now, here's what's interesting about this one. It's not that the Lord is proved by making frogs come from everywhere. The Lord is proved by making the frogs go away. In verses 7 through or 8 through 15, we see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but it starts with Pharaoh's request to take the frogs away. He doesn't go to the magicians of Egypt to say, hey, take these frogs out of our land. He comes to Moses and to Aaron. And Moses goes through this process where he's just kind of being a responsible kind of gentleman there, right? And Moses is saying... Please be, verse 9, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people. Please tell me when I'm to do this thing. And Pharaoh says, tomorrow. And sure enough, tomorrow rolls around. Moses speaks the prayer. The frogs go away. But what we might miss is what happens in verse 10. He said Pharaoh said, tomorrow. And Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. The emphasis here again from Moses is to say, you need to know that you called on me to take these frogs away, but there's no one like our God that can do these kinds of things.
1: God relents of his frog invasion in order to show Pharaoh, who thinks
0: he's a god, but there's no one like him. Think about Egypt. Egypt is this place that is truly pluralistic. That's a big word we use to describe it. They have many gods, and they think there's all kinds of options for things to worship, right? There's the god of the Nile. There's the God of uh, multiple gods of of fertility, like a cat and all these other things. There's Ra. There's all these gods that are there. And and different ones are to be worshipped for different things. And, And what God is imposing himself upon this nation to prove is that he is the only God, that there's no one there like him, that in this pluralistic nation that no one can claim to be like Yahweh. Each god or goddess has its unique purpose, but there's one god who oversees all of the
1: elements.
0: So Moses is there intercessing before God. Frogs go away. And yet again, in verse 15, we see, when Pharaoh saw that there was respite, he hardened his
1: heart. It's interesting how he states it there, isn't it? Every other passage we've seen so far is that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. The
0: language is different here. Here, Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. Sometimes God is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes Pharaoh is hardening his own heart here and in verse 30 of chapter 8. Sometimes the passage just merely says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't give us any kind of notion of who's doing it. In fact, if we were to be honest this morning, if we were to kind of dig into the text, there's actually three different words used throughout these early chapters of Exodus to describe the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. There's kabad, it's just to be heavy. Uh, there's hazak, to be strong, or kasah, to, to be tough or severe. And so all of these words are kind of used to kind of show us there's different nuances to what's happening inside Pharaoh. It shows us that these issues of hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it's complex and multifaceted. What God wills in his foreknowledge, it finds its facilitation in real time in people's lives like Pharaoh and others. God hardens, but Pharaoh is also obstinate. And these two things are two sides of the same coin. They're both happening together. What God has predestined, Pharaoh also is desiring, such that the divine hardening and human responsibility are both present. It's simultaneously true that God hardened Pharaoh's heart to show his divine prerogative, like Romans 9 unpacks for us, and that Pharaoh failed in his responsibility before God. And if we overemphasize either of those things, we kind of miss it, don't we? Whatever it is that's happening here, whatever Pharaoh promised that he would do, he forgets. Right? He promises if we were to go back.
1: Excuse me. Moses and Aaron went out. Verse 12.
0: forgive me i I lost myself we'll move on so god continues into the next plague and this third plague is one of gnats look at verse 16 the lord said to moses say to aaron stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of egypt and they did so Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and, and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Again, God speaks to Moses, just as he did in 7.14 and in 8.1, and and Pharaoh uh, gets no advanced warning this time. Isn't that interesting that in the previous two plagues, God goes and he tells Moses to go and confront Pharaoh, but this time he just says, Moses, just strike the dust of the earth. There's no warning given to Pharaoh. He's already given enough warning to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's heart has been so hardened that in this third plague, as well as in the sixth plague, as well as in the ninth plague, there is no warning that's going to be given. And specifically, he tells Aaron to strike the dust of the earth. Just imagine that every dust mite in your house became a bug. Yeah, everybody groans collectively, right? I remember we were on vacation once. We were in Sanibel Island, and we were going to go to this lighthouse. Jody and I were talking about it last night. We're going to go to this lighthouse. It's like dusk. It's really beautiful out. The sun is setting, and we're traveling on this beach to go see this lighthouse, and everything is beautiful and pristine. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves in the midst of this bug infestation. I don't know how else to describe it. There's bugs everywhere all around us, and we're picking up kids and running, We forgot Ellie because she's the middle child. But we run, we try to get out of it. The next morning, we got bug bites everywhere, all over us. Just a reminder of what it would be like to be here in this setting when there's bugs everywhere, right? And so he strikes the dust of the earth. The dust turns into gnats. And these aren't just gnats. They could be lice. It could be bugs of all kinds, you're like, that just got worse, right? I'd rather have gnats than lice. Whatever it is, it's like the previous plagues. It's nothing life-threatening, but man, it just turns life on its head, doesn't it? It's like God is saying, hey, you've got to pay attention to me. I'm here, I'm present with you, I'm showing myself to you. This fascinating thing happens where, where these magicians, they, they were able to reproduce all these other miracles. They can't reproduce this one. And they say to Pharaoh, they say, this is the finger of God. I imagine like these guys that for their profession, what they're supposed to do is put Pharaoh at ease by re-performing these miracles. And they finally say, I can't do this one. And by the way, you're only a little G God compared to this God. The end of it all in verse 19 is that Pharaoh's heart is hardened yet again. Despite his magician's inability. Despite their statement that this is the finger of God, Pharaoh still will not listen. Pharaoh's heart was too hard for the raw data to kind of penetrate into him. All the evidence was placed in front of him. The the Nile was blood. The, The land was filled with dead, stinking frogs. And now there's gnats everywhere. And his own trusted people were looking at him saying, I can't reproduce that. And you better listen to what this God is saying to you.
1: He wouldn't let Israel go.
0: What is this? Our passage this morning presents us with these three stories of God's transcendent power. He shows us the direction that God gives to Moses, the action that Moses and Aaron take, and then the hardening of Pharaoh that results from it. And each passage, there's a statement that shows us the particular emphases of these narratives. We go back to chapter 7, verse 17. Uh, Moses says to Pharaoh, He says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Chapter 8, verse 10, He said, Tomorrow, and Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like our God. And in chapter 8, verse 19, the magicians say to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Who is Yahweh? Who is this God? He's the self-existing one. He takes Nile. He takes the water of the nation of Egypt and he turns it into blood. He brings frogs out of every crack and corner of the universe and places them in Egypt, he, he takes the dust of the earth and he turns them into gnats and he's saying, I'm God, you've got to pay attention to me. You are nothing in comparison to me. You can't hold a candle to the glory that I bring. See, what this passage is telling us this morning is that our God is unparalleled. There's no one in all creation like this God. No one. No powerful kingdom ruler in all of human history can hold a candle to the greatness and power of God. There's no fairytale God out there that is as powerful as what God describes Himself to be here. He is unparalleled. He is absolutely sovereign and powerful in this text here this morning and in our lives. See, God is unparalleled.
1: Notice that what Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt
0: couldn't do, God accomplished. Through two guys that were 80 years old with a stick
1: they picked up in the woods.
0: Look at Exodus chapter 8, verse 10. That you may know that there's no one like me. Chapter 8, verse 19.
1: This is the finger God. See, throughout the Bible, God had
0: validated Himself through signs and wonders. Ever notice that? There's always this question of what sign will you perform to prove this to be true? <clears throat> so, you know, you have prophets, and they do these various miracles and various types of things to prove that their message was true. In fact, God told us that this is exactly what he was going to do in the nation of Egypt. If we go back, in fact, it's on the screen here this morning, into Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, this is what God says to Moses. He says, "'I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt.'" Pharaoh, will not listen to you. Multiplies his signs and wonders to bring validation to who he is. He refers to these ten plagues as signs and wonders here. In fact, this is kind of interesting. Sometimes God refers to them as plagues, and sometimes he refers to them as signs and wonders, and it kind of depends who he's talking to. When he talks to Moses, they're signs and wonders. They're validation of the faith that already exists. When he speaks to Pharaoh, they're plagues. They're hardships that he has to endure in unbelief. See, he refers to them as wonders to Moses and Aaron and as plagues to Pharaoh. It shows their dual purpose. that they're, to, to those who are hardened, they are plagues of warning. To those being softened by God, they are confirmation of God's sovereign power thus i suggest a new word i think we should call them wonder plagues since we're going to bend the english language anyway we might as well do it yet again make no mistake though that these wonder plagues make god himself known pharaoh had no idea who yahweh was but now yahweh will be unforgettable in the mind of pharaoh these plagues and wonders show us that God is unparalleled. That as he said, there's no one like him. Now you think about signs and wonders. Who else was asked to perform signs and wonders? If we look ahead in Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. These men were seeking a sign. Jesus tells us so clearly in verse 19 or 39 that are evil. An adulteress to seek a son. Why? Isn't it worth noting that Jesus, Son of God, came into the midst of His people and went unrecognized? That word adulteress is a way that the New Old Testament describes time and time again the, the unfaithfulness of Israel as they seek other gods and goddesses to worship. Jesus is highlighting it. You don't see me because you're
1: worshiping the wrong things.
0: And he goes on and he says, I'm going to give you one sign. One sign to remove all doubt about who he was. The sign of Jonah was that Jesus would go into the belly of death. He would stay in the tomb for three days. And finally, by the power of the Spirit, he would be raised to new life. While Jonah was swallowed up by death because of his sin, Jesus willingly went into death without sin. He was raised up by God's vindication so that this resurrection was God's sign, the validation of Jesus' true sonship and his right relationship to the Father. That's the only sign he needed to do. It's really interesting to think that God is going to give 10 plagues to prove who he is. And then he's going to deliver Israel and he's going to give them 10 rules. I don't think that's an accident, do you? That God is going to prove himself in these 10 ways. And then when he's speaking about his law, he's going to say, I am the Lord, your God, who what? Who brought you out of the land of Egypt you shall have no other
1: gods before me.
0: It's God who's unparalleled. this God who no one else can touch or hold a candle to his glory. He demands our singular focus on him. See, god's first commandment was that we have no other gods before him. There's nothing and no one in all of God's creation that can compare with him. I don't know who this is, but I found this quote from J. Baldwin Brown. He says, We shall never understand the spiritual movements of our own or of any other generation unless we see that God's controversy with idols and idolatry is the main controversy of the world. Let me read that again. We shall never understand the spiritual movements of our own or any other generation unless we see that God's controversy with idols and idolatries is the main controversy of the world. What's the world's problems? It's finding another God outside of this unparalleled God, Yahweh. You know, you and I, what we do is we say this as as theological abstraction. It's an idea that we claim to think we know, but practically don't live out. We say things like, there is no one like our God. God is so good. God is so mighty. God is so powerful. But yet we consistently go about our day-to-day lives with a different set of beliefs. We orient our, th- our lives around things like church and Bible reading and prayer, but subtly we pursue the lesser gods of our existence. We comfort ourselves and our difficulty through Netflix and donuts and pornography. Or if you're a little bit different, when when you really feel pressed in life, what you do is you chain yourself to your work desk. Or if you really want to get down to the nitty-gritty, you push your kids a little bit harder so that you can make yourself seem successful as a mom or a dad. The truth is this morning, there isn't anything else in this world that will please you. It's worthy of our honor. There's nothing else that holds a candle to the glory of Christ. Listen to know what the psalmist says in Psalm 16. He says, you will make known to me the path of life in your presence is what fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever." Jeremiah chapter 9, he says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the strong man boast in his strength, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me. And I'm the Lord who exercises love and kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight. If we're going to boast about anything, we got to boast about our knowledge of Christ. my call this morning is for us to lay aside all of these lesser gods and to find true satisfaction in the
1: one God who can really offer it. Amen. Let
0: me pray for us this morning. Lord, I ask that you would do exactly that. Help us to find our satisfaction in you and in you alone. Strip us of all these other deities that hold out promise, but... Deliver nothing, strip us of our desire for satisfaction in lesser things. We confess, like Jeremiah, that we have broken out or dug out for ourselves broken cisterns that hold no water. We've forsaken you, the fountain of living waters, only to dig wells that don't provide anything.
1: So, Lord, give us the strength to turn to you in faith. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.